This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 181. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Save the date. We've announced our next virtual conference, the SNN Network Virtual Event, which will be held on August 17th through 19, 2021. The website is live, so you can find the full details on the event at conference.snn.network. Registration is open, so click the register button once you are there. We're actually announcing our initial speakers and sponsors next week, so register now to be the first to know. Again, that's the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event happening August 17th through 19, 2021. The website to register is conference.snn.network. Look forward to seeing you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Brandon Bela. He is the host of the Value Hive Podcast and Research Analyst at Macro Ops. I've known Brandon for a while now, and this was way long overdue uh, to have him on the show. He's incredibly passionate about investing, and that comes through in all of his endeavors via the podcast as well as his work at Macro Ops. As a guest on his show, I saw that firsthand in the prep Brandon does, even, even for me. Uh, and, and I think he's just such a, a true asset to the space. We had a fun chat where we jam on his background, investing strategy, and specifically on cult companies and whether they make good cult stocks. Thank you again for tuning into episode 181 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Brandon Bela. everybody to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me right now is a fellow soldier in the podcast minefield, in the field of battle, you know, investing podcast. You know, he's since starting it, it's really blown up and I'm, I'm really excited to have him on here, considering him a colleague and a friend now. So with that, I'd like to introduce Brandon Bello, the host of the Value Hive podcast as well as a, a, re, is a research analyst at Macro Ops. Yeah, I know you're a yep. host. Research analyst. Yeah. Okay. All right. The research writer. analyst at, <laughs> writer at, at Macro Ops. And uh, with that, Brandon, this is a long time coming, man. It's good to have you on. It's good. Yeah, it's good to be back on. I'm trying to think of the last time we were on. It was, uh, I feel like it was warm weather last year. It was almost like a full year ago, was it? Or was it in October? It not, yeah, I think... I think it might have been in October, actually, or maybe not. Actually, actually, it might have been a little later. Now that I think about it, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't remember, man. You know what? I, but hey, I want to just say thank you for having me on. That was I, I got a lot of really great feedback from that, and uh, I appreciate you, uh, uh, 
you know, having me on the show. That was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm trying to find everybody. Like, I, like one of the one of the things that I think is funny is I'll direct message some of these people with, uh, you know, 200, 300 followers or whatever, and and I'll be like, hey, like I just want to pick your brain. Like, come on the podcast. And they're like, no, no, no. I'm like, I'm. There's no way I'm qualified. And I'm just, I'm like, dude, like, look at me. Like, I'm gonna look like the stupid one asking the questions. Like, I'm asking you to come on because I think you're really smart, and I think other people would really enjoy hearing what you have to say. Um, so, you know, for, for, for me, it's just about finding these people that wouldn't traditionally come on podcasts and, and try to bring them on and create something fun. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, it's funny. I had those same conversations. I'm actually, I just had that conversation with, with somebody that I'm really stoked that's coming on the pod very shortly. Is it Tiny Stock Ninja? No, that one, I'm trying. Because I just that. DM'd him. Oh, that's so funny. I was saying, I figured, I, I figured he'd come on uh, Maj's pod, which you were a guest on on uh, avoiding the crowd because i mean he's, he's now i guess a contributor to the uh to the geo investing premium option yeah look i know people can go and follow you on the podcast and I, you've done a few interviews before as well but you know for our audience here at planet microcap let's let's start from the from the beginning you know where did your passion for investing begin yeah so i've been obsessed with stocks ever since i was in fifth grade uh, I had a professor or a teacher, uh, Miss Wheeler. We had a stock picking class and it was just, you know, you get paper money and you would just use Excel as your portfolio. And she was very Peter Lynch style where she would say, Hey, you know, and invest in what, you know, um, you know, let's, let's, let's pick a company, see which one, you know, and being the fat kid that I was, I would say, Oh, Krispy Kreme. Like I love Krispy Kreme. And it's funny how they're actually IPOing again. So it's like, you know, worlds, worlds collide. Uh, but I was like, oh, Krispy Kreme. And so, you know, she typed in the ticker and I was like, wow, like I could be a part owner of this donut manufacturer that I love eating. And um, from there, it just, it, it honestly always stayed with me. Like I had other interests and things like that as I, as I grew older, but the idea of owning shares and businesses and being a part owner and actually benefiting from the business's success, um, you know, is, is something that never left. And it was kind of like the inoculation phase where, you know, kind of, if you know, you know, and so, you know, it hit me in fifth grade. And by the time I was in high school, I guess I was printing off 10 K's reading them in class. I hated school. So what I would do is I would just, you know, during class, I would, I would read 10 K's, read investor presentations, read Warren Buffett interviews. I would print them out. I can't imagine how many pieces or reams of paper I used from the school, uh, that I went to. Uh, it was actually funny. Like the first, I forget whose podcast it was. It might've been, might've been yours, but, um, I told the story of, I was printing off Coca-Cola's 10 K and the, at the time, I had no idea how large 10Ks could be, right? Because I'm in high school, I've, I've got no idea. Like, what's, you know, what's what's a 10K? And so I was like, all right, I'll print it off. And started printing it off. And it was page one of 496. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to stop this at some point. So I think I, st I think I stopped it at, like, page 157. Who, who told you to, who told you, you had to read 10Ks, by the way? I mean, fifth grade, you're probably just like, all right, let's see, you know. I like Well, Krispy it's Kreme. actually funny you mentioned that. So... It was just kind of, I found out like, okay, this is, you know, I can invest in companies that I know and understand. And then the teacher said, okay, a way to figure out, you know, if you want to buy the company is you read their reports. And so she said, you know, there you go, you go to Yahoo Finance and you can find the reports and then you can go to the company's website and find the reports too. And so it, 
it wasn't a time where I was like, oh, I need to, you know, read the 10K, because uh, who reads 10Ks and you know anymore? Um, but it was, it was just something that I started doing, and I don't know if it was just boredom from like my stats class in high school or something like that. But I'm just like, you know what? If Buffett started with the 10Ks and started reading the financial statements, like let me start doing that, and and I did, and from there it's been, you know, nothing but just trying to obsessively learn and nonstop um, journey in, in, in just trying to learn and, and understand as much as I can. I mean, even then, were you trying, were you starting to build up the patterns in your mind? Like, okay, well, I, listen, I have a competitive advantage. I started reading these reports younger than most, you know? So did you start coming up with patterns in your mind? Because look, most people that read, you know, you got Paul Andreola reads every CDR filing. You got Mosh who reads every Q and K. I mean, there's a ton of examples of people that do that, you know, but I think, the reason they do that now and they still do that is because they develop that pattern of like, all right, I know what I'm looking for. Okay, good. Next, you know, like mm-hmm. were you starting to do that? Were you starting to develop those patterns in your mind? What, what were they? I don't think on purpose I was, but sure. Of course, you know, looking, looking back, it was one of those things where I just started trying to learn the financial statements, income statement, balance sheet, cash flows. And so what I would do from the start is just read the overview of what the business did. And then I would read like a few of the risk factors and then I would just skip the rest because to me, I was like, all these seem kind of boilerplate because even, even when I was in high school reading, reading a risk factor that said, you know, Hey, our stock price may go down from time to time because of non fundamental reasons. I'm like, okay, well, yes, like I understand that. And so you, if, 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 if that's one of the risk factors, then there's probably quite a few that are just standard boilerplate. Obviously I'm doing that. You're probably going to miss the actual risks that, that you probably do want to read. So that's one thing is actually teaching myself to read all of those risk factors, but it wasn't really anything like, Oh, I'm starting to develop these patterns. I think if anything, the one thing I did learn is that I loved what I was doing. And it wasn't something where I was just, you know, oh, it's kind of a hobby. I recognized early on that this is something I could do for a really long time, which I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant to give myself like some sort of edge, even if it's informational or, you know, quantitative, because there's people that are way smarter than me. But if there is an edge in understanding what is going to drive you for the rest of your life and what's, and what you're going to be passionate about for the rest of your life, if there is an edge in understanding that at an earlier age than others, then I think that there was something there for me at least because now I had the advantage of time and compounding because I could start from an earlier age with a stronger passion base. And even if I'm not the smartest person, I can make up for a lot of that in just time spent learning if I start earlier than other people. Got it. Hey, I I would consider that a major edge, especially coming from someone who uh, I didn't know what I was going to do until I, I, my dad said, Hey, why don't you try the family business? Like, Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Let me let me give it a shot. Not that that's not to say I didn't know about stocks and microcaps and you know found it interesting, but didn't I didn't know if like that was going to be my life by mm-hmm. any means, you know. So I, I I always envy people like you that have just knew right off the bat, like, okay, I love this. And not just treating it like a hobby, you know, treating it like this could be something bigger, yeah. you know, and 
I mean, even for those who don't, who treat it like a hobby and then they fall into it, then it ends up being their career. That's amazing yeah. too. Don't get me wrong, but like, yeah, well, and one thing it's pretty awesome yeah, when you're like, yeah. And one thing too, it's, it's, I know it's, it's, it's not like, you know, I said in high school or, or fifth grade, like, oh, this is what I want to do forever. And then I never did anything else. I had a winding loop to get to where I am now. Like I wanted to be, I love, I, I, I always loved writing. So even from, you know, as early as I could, I would send, um, request to the local newspaper to see if I could become a sports journalist there. And so I ended up writing a couple articles there. I just loved writing. So I actually went to college to try to become a journalist and a sports broadcaster. That didn't end up working for a lot of reasons, one of which I didn't have the GPA to get into the program that I wanted. And so that led me down a path of going into sports physiology and exercise physiology because I was trying to think, well, I don't need to take all these school classes to study investing because I just do that when I'm not doing class. So let me try to find something that could, you know, pass the time or, you know, cause I, you always have people telling you like what you should Finance, and shouldn't uh, do. <laughs> yeah. Like there was, there were so many people back then they're like, Oh, you should do this. You shouldn't do this. You should do that. And, um, it was definitely not a straight line. It was a lot of ups and downs and then always recognizing in the back of my mind that investing is really what I love. Yo, that don't stop for the, your whole life. People telling you, oh, you should be doing oh, this. I know. Or you should be doing that. <laughs> that don't stop. And now you're engaged, dude. That, that don't stop. Trust me, now it's just starting. <laughs> <laughs> that was good stuff. All right, wait, hold on. So what what sport were you um, were, were you doing uh, journalist work for? Like, what, What's your sport? Well, so I, I mean, I played a bunch of sports, but I, I wrote about basketball and there was at the at the local where i where i grew up there was a new swim center that that opened and so they 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 had me do an article on this on this new swim center um but you know when i was when i was in high school the other thing like this whole podcasting thing too is just kind of an extension of of of, of my passions because in high school i started a i started a sports radio station i was you know hey it'd be cool if we could broadcast baseball um, and so what was nice is I actually got to leave when the baseball team left. So I would, so I would get to skip to class and I would go and, uh, commentate baseball, commentate basketball. And I did that awesome. for, I think like the last year while I was, while I was in high school. So, yeah, that's so sick. Actually, funny enough, I was going to wear my Yankee Jersey on this for our recording today. I decided against it cause I couldn't find an undershirt. So yeah. you're lucky that I'm very disorganized and I didn't wear my Yankee Jersey for, yeah, well, as a, as a, Red Sox fan, at least in the AL, I appreciate that. Oh, okay. Very actually, you know, Kevin Shea, whenever he comes on the round table, he always rips me. Like whenever he wears his Boston Red Sox hat, I'm like, yeah. do I have to broadcast this right now? Come on, man. <laughs> just take just take it off. Just for me. Got nice hair. But uh I thought you're a Nats fan though, aren't you? I thought you right? Yeah, well, I love the Nats, okay. but okay. uh the the Nats didn't come around until I think 2006. That's true. And I hated the Orioles. After Cal Ripken left, um, he was he was my favorite player, and then he left, and I was like, I got no use for the Orioles. So I said, let me pick another team, and we were in Disney World when the Red Sox were playing the Yankees. I think it was like the ALCS or the ALDS, and I remember Johnny Depp was on the Red Sox, and it was the year that they, you know, they Johnny basically Depp? broke the curse. Hold on, Johnny and, Depp or Johnny Depp, Johnny Damon. That, right? Damon. <laughs> that was good. I like that was a good that was a good one. Uh, listen, so Johnny, I, was just, I was just watching Pirates of the Caribbean last night too. Okay, man. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I remember that being, being in Disney world and uh, watching that game and just thinking, you know what, like this is a cool team. Cause I think they had Manny Ramirez on that team, Jason Veritek, 
um kevin euclid or euclid or something he had that Euclid's, weird oh weird gosh, yeah yeah Brandon. euclid's that weird stance i mean that was a cool team and i was just sitting there and was like you know what i can root for them and so i mean ever since then you know you should have looked at the yankees roster and no. realized like that's a it. that's actually a cool team i always you know, hated the yankees. 2006 i think we're thinking that's still that's we got mo we got Posada still. Jeter's still kicking ass. I think Bernie was still playing in 2006. Yeah, I think Bernie I was still like playing. Jeter. Jeter's a cool yeah. dude. There we go. I got to get my Jeter poster up. I got I got a Jeter poster that says, I thank God every day that I was a Yankee. You know, the Joe DiMaggio line. All that. Yeah. Great. Anyways, all right. Let's, back, let's get back to investing. All right. So you said, as you said, took a couple loops to get to where we're at today. So catch us up. You know, how, how did we get to uh, where you're at today at MacroOps and then also launching Diehive? So graduated, well, while I was in college, I had the privilege of working at an RIA in Baltimore. Um, the company was called CIC Wealth, uh, for anybody interested. They, I had the absolute best uh, boss. Uh, his name was Michael. And he took me in. I was, I was an intern, and I had no experience other than, you know, hey, I really like investing. And I was starting to write. Uh, just like a private blog, my my ideas. And so I sent him those. And he started me basically from ground one and or or, or from ground uh, ground zero. And I would I would go in and it wasn't paid. So he was like, hey, you know what? I'm just gonna let you know this is not a paid internship. And I was like, that's fine. Like I just want to learn. And every day when I was in there, he, I could just go into his office and pitch him an idea. And he would sit down and he'd say, all right, you know, this is what I like, this is what I don't like go back to the drawing board, check this out. And just the lessons that I got were incredibly, um, you just, 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 just the idea that you've got this random intern in myself that could go into, you know, the PM's office basically and just say, Hey, here's, what I'm thinking about these, these, these different companies and have him sit down and really, really talk to you and really want you to succeed. Uh, I, you know, could never, could never repay him enough. And so, I worked there for free while I was in college, and then when I graduated. I went back there, worked full time for about a year and a half, two years, and then during that time, um, I was interested in doing work with MacroOps, which is a global macro research firm based out of Austin, Texas. Uh, Alex Barrow is one of the co-founders, probably the smartest all-around trader that I've ever met in my life, and so to be able to work for him was incredible. And I I cold emailed them. This is actually a funny story. So I brought Alex onto my podcast and he knew the story better than I did, which is funny because it does not paint me in a good light. So that's probably why I subconsciously don't remember it. But how it goes is I took one of their courses on price action and I took it and I found it to be rudimentary, at least for where I was as a trader. The course was awesome. I did, I found it to be rudimentary. Um and so I, <laughs> I emailed them back and I said, Hey guys, you know, I love, I love what you're doing, but, um, I took this course and it was just way too basic for me. Can I have my money back? And in that same breath, in that same breath, like I had the audacity to say, by the way, like, do you guys need any help? Like, I would love to work with you guys. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, it, it started there. I was, I was just doing some, you know, freelance, um, unpaid research work for, for Alex. Um, and you know, one thing, one thing led to another. And after a couple of years, the, 
the team had enough money and Mac Rops was doing well enough to bring me on full time. And that was in September of 2019, I believe. And I guess, you know, how they say the rest is history. I've got, we've got the swag now, um, wearing, wearing <laughs> the nice Mac Rops quarter zip. Uh, we are growing pretty fast. Um, we've actually added two new guys to our team, uh, two new interns. And it's just been an incredible opportunity. I can't thank Alex enough for giving me the chance. Cause again, you know, I'm, I'm this, I'm this guy. I don't have like the pedigree, like, Oh, Hey, I went to, you know, Harvard business school or, you know, Hey, I went to, you know, an Ivy league college. And then I did two years in investment banking and I've got all these credentials. There's just, you know, Hey, I'm really passionate about investing. I'm probably going to work harder than most people um, because I love what I do. And I hope you guys can give me a shot. And that's what it was. And so I've been doing that since September of 2019. The podcast I've been doing since December of 2020, I think. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, knock on wood, I've been able to release a new episode, I think every week since then, which is nuts. Um, but then when I think about all the episodes that you've released, I'm like, ah, it's not really that much. <laughs> so <laughs> dude, dude, it's hey, man, hey, you, I do plenty of episodes ahead of you to, to say the I least. Hope I, so. mean, I hope so. I hope so. I, I, I actually think the podcast is gaining a bit of momentum. We've got some cool partners behind us for these next few months, some really cool products that, that that, that, that have decided to sponsor. And, um, I'm just excited about learning from, from, from new people. Hell yeah. That's what it's all about. And you know what, at the end of the I, I think I made this point on your show, or maybe I'd say this way too much now, but like, it's not to say that blogs and now Substack are going away. In fact, especially with Substack now, I, I would say that, you know, still investment writing and blogging has, it's created a whole new platform. I, I think it's incredible. I got to subscribe to some more of these subsets. Actually, I don't. I don't subscribe to enough of them. But podcasting has really filled a, a nice gap because it's really efficient. You know, for yeah. people to share their ideas, get their ideas out there in a timely manner. And there's so many good quality shows, with good quality hosts. Not saying I'm one of them. You are one of them for sure. Maybe I don't know. At some point, who knows? But I say at you some know, point I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but, <laughs> But, but, but at the end of the day, like that's that, that I, I think for us as podcasters hosts, like we don't, I, I, I don't ever get as worried as I used to. Like I, I used to do it every other week because, well, I was also, I'm also in a niche space with microcaps. So I was like, all right, I yeah. don't know. There's not that many, it's not that many microcap people to like talk about or like the people right. that w even have some exposure. They're mm -hmm. like, well, I don't want to go on a microcap podcast and just talk about microcap strategy because we do so much stuff. But you know, once you kind of open it up, that's, that's when you're like, all right, there's more people, you know, out yeah. there. Well, it's funny, it's funny you say that because the internet rewards niche communities and they really reward right. niche behavior and niche interests. And yep. you, can, you can see that with um, Fool all the time on Twitter. He's created an ecosystem for himself around semiconductors and the only way he was able to do that is by ruthlessly focusing on one specific industry and that's semiconductors. And on, so, 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 so you have that part, right? The internet rewards niche, but on the other side, you have like, what do you actually want to do? And so for me personally, like as much as niche, finding a niche and really diving into that would be beneficial from a publishing, from an internet standpoint, um, maybe, maybe even economically, I have too broad of an interest in too many things to probably define myself into one niche. And again, like 
from a business standpoint, that's probably not the optimal decision, but from a passion standpoint and what I love doing, um, it's, it's, it's one of the ways that just keeps me excited because I can write about ideas in Brazil for one month and then the next month completely flip the script and go to Japan and write about different ideas in Japan. And, uh, you know, stuff like that excites me, but I, but, but there is a tangible trade-off to that, that I'm well aware of. A hundred percent. But at the same time, as, and, and literally, as you just said, like you can still focus on the, some niches that are interesting to you and create you know, back to back to back content, at least enough of it, that mm-hmm. it'll still, you'll, you'll still get rewarded as long as the, the work and the content's quality, right? right? Like if you're just, if you're just throwing stuff out there just to say like, oh, that niche is starting to get a little, get a little something, something, you know, yeah. you throw, you just throw some content at it, you know, it, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to get rewarded for it, but like, you, yeah. you, and you guys do quality stuff. So it's not like you're going to, you're, you're going to still satisfy that, that urge while also being able to, um, look at some of the things that you're also interested in. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, let's get into your investing philosophy a little bit. You know, tell me like what, what, what the, the podcast is called value high podcast. So I'm sure most people know you as a, as a quote unquote value investor, but mm-hmm. define yourself for, for our audience. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I, I really like the name value hive, but I, I hate just the idea of like defining someone as a value investor. And I think it was, shoot, what podcast did I just listen to? It was, I think it was uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's with Howard Marks mm-hmm. or it was Ho Noms on the Acquired podcast. But one of those, I heard the phrase like, I'm not a growth investor. I'm not a value investor. I'm just an investor. And for me, like, that's it. Like, I'm just I'm just an investor, and what I try to do is I try to find businesses that excite me, uh, where the companies uh, satisfy their customers and the customers delight in their products and services, and that company is run by sensible management that makes smart decisions. And what I'm trying to do then is identify prices at which the company is trading ridiculously cheap compared to what I think it's going to be worth in the next five, 10, 15 years. And so from a high level, that's pretty much what it is. Um, And I came about that thesis again in kind of a roundabout way where, you know, I used to look for low price to earnings, low price to book, low price to free cash flow, and really focus on the quantitative metrics. And I mean, while that all that found some interesting ideas, I, I think in general, that's not where public markets are headed in the future. And so if you think about you know, trying to invert the end game for public markets. One of my opinions is that the best public market investors will invariably look like the best VCs out there because markets are going to become much more efficient over time. And there's, it's just, it's just going to accelerate into its efficiency as technology, you know, gets better and, and, and people have more of the same information at the same time. And so for me, the edge, and by the way, I stole a lot of this from, from Cliff Sosen of CES Investment Partners, um, because I think at the end game, what you're going to have is the best investors are those that can reasonably predict the future of a business better than other people. And then that prediction of that business in the future has a much higher value than the price that they're paying today. And so that's obviously a much more like VC approach because in VC, whether it's early stage, you know, series ABC, um, 
you've got you've got a product, you've got a team, you've got maybe you've got product market fit, maybe you've got some revenues, starting to see these signs of network effects, but you really don't know. And if you judge on current financials or let's say like last 12 months, that's going to be a completely different picture than the business than 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 what the business is actually going to be in in 3 to 5 years. And so that's kind of been my my ethos and kind of my my north star is saying okay, if this is the end game and if the best public market investors are actually going to look like VCs, then what do I need to do and how do I need to analyze these businesses going forward? And so that's why I spend, you know, now I spend less time on purely quantitative metrics um and I and I really try to understand uh what problem this business solves for its customers. And the important thing to keep in mind there, there's this book called Crossing the Chasm by um shoot, who is that by? Let me check it out. But the book basically by by Jeffrey Moore and I wrote a book review on it. And the and the the central theme of Crossing the Chasm is it's trying to understand how early stage technology companies penetrate their early niche markets those early innovator customers and then make the transition from the early stage innovator of customers to the early majority and the late majority markets and when i read that book it just reemphasized the point of trying to find companies that solve real problems and the problems that it solves for those customers even if it's a small number of customers at first it's a very large problem for them because if it because it's because if it's a very large problem for that small batch of customers if the company can find a way to scale that from there then you're going to have just this beautiful you know lollapalooza effect where it solves a lot of the same problems for the majority of people at that point um i i think that by the way that was so uh, brandon I, that was so eloquently said. And I, 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 no, no, I'm, I'm being serious. Like that was, we I, didn't have an outline for I this, get, by the way. So all this is no, on no, we're, yeah, but, but yeah, no, look, listen, I, listen, I'm not Brandon Bre Bailo prep. And you know, like I, I did, I used to be a little bit more, but now like, I, I like to keep it more free flowing, but, yeah. but anyways, but it, everything you just said, I very much agree with, I, I, especially because um, one, one, one company that you just wrote about, um, very much fits that model. I know, uh, and it's the company uh, Figs. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure: I'm not a shareholder, but neither am I. My wife loves Figs. In yeah. fact, I'm on their mailing list because I think when she bought it the first time, I now get every marketing email. Mm -hmm. But that's she's a nurse, and that's all she wears is is the Fig stuff, you know. And she she says it's the most comfortable. It's affordably priced, you know, so uh, to, uh, how, how does a company like figs fit sort of what you're talking about? And you said you're not a shareholder, right? I'm not a shareholder. No, I wish I was though. <laughs> when I, when I, when I wrote about it, cause the stocks done nothing but rip. Uh, let me see, let me see where it is now. Uh, yeah, it's at 46 IPO at 28. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think I released the yeah, so I released the write-up on May 26th. So it was a couple days before the IPO. Um, but I thought even even kind of at the IPO price, and you know maybe maybe we can get into this later. But even at the IPO price from a valuation perspective, uh, it just wasn't something that I was um, you know that I was willing to to buy at that point. But so you asked basically, you know, how does how does Figs fit into kind of my investment philosophy? 
Okay. So as, as an as an example. Yeah. yeah, yeah, as an example. So, you know, first things right is I try to find various case studies, you can call them maybe mental models of companies and themes that have worked in the past. And one of the themes that I always like to fall back on is cult stocks um, and really trying to understand like the power of cults and brands. And I wrote about this in the figs piece itself. But what's 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 interesting about brands and cults is that there's there's certain types of products that really um, beget cult um mentality. So for instance, Yeti is a great example of a cult brand that I've been wrong on in the past. Like I, I tried to short it once, you know, I see your Yeti. I tried to short it once, uh, based on technicals, got stopped out. And, you know, I just realized that there, that there are certain products that have cultability. I don't even think that that's a word, but you know, um, and, 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 and what are they at the end of the day? They're, I don't know if your next so- book. <laughs> so at the end of the day, these these cult products are status symbols. And Packy McCormick does a great job of explaining the idea of, you know, earning currency um, in kind of the social status game. And uh, the way he does it is kind of through angel investing where you're not investing because of the business, but just because you get social status points. And so I thought about this. I thought about that framework through the lens of brands and what products have that cult-like capability to earn social status points. And Yeti was a great one because if you think about Yeti, like what do you do with your Yeti when you're with it? Like if you've got a big cooler, like why are you using the big cooler? It's probably because you're at a party with your friends or it's probably because you're out on a fishing trip with your, you know, with your with your buddies or you're at a tailgate. And what do all those events have in common? you get to interact with other people. Other people get to see you. They see you with the Yeti cooler and they say, wow, this guy's got enough money to buy a $500 cooler. And whether you agree that cooler should be that expensive or not isn't the point. The fact is it's a social status symbol, uh, which is funny because you wouldn't think coolers are like that, but but they are. And they've created, Yeti's done a great job of creating this brand around that. And so now they've got, you know, dog bowls, um, and, and, and they've got, you know, this whole product line where if you buy Yeti, you know, what you're saying is I value, you know, some of these things and I have enough discretionary income to spend $80 on a freaking dog bowl when I could just use, uh, you know, a Tupperware bin for $2. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, I thought about that and then I married that social status symbol game with cult like brands like Lululemon which is kind of a classic example. So, you know, Lululemon, there's really nothing different. I'm not a shareholder. Uh, Lululemon is, you know, just yoga pants. They make, they make apparel, not really anything uh, significantly different than, you know, say Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, but what they did do a great job at is make excellent products, um, that fit really well and they feel really good. And so, you know, as someone that doesn't like to spend money on clothes for myself, I actually used to work at Lululemon and we had to buy clothes there. And so I bought, I bought some pants, I bought some shorts and they are really great pants. I love their pants. Yeah. The ABC pants are amazing. The best. I wear them all the time. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, you've got this cult like phenomenon around Lululemon around their products because not only did they create a great product, but they created this great brand around, Hey, we are 
promoting athletics. We're promoting, you know, people that do yoga, people that bike, um, you know, everybody that wants to be active. So when you put on Lululemon, you're not just putting on clothes. What you're doing is you're saying, I am an athletic person. I engage in athletic activities and I care about maintaining physical performance and I care about my body. Like that's, that's what you're saying. And so I married that social status symbol of Yeti with this cult-like behavior of Lululemon. I thought, well, figs kind of marries both of these really well. And so what is figs? Figs is, to put it simply, figs is just the Lululemon of scrubs, honestly. Um, and I yep. hate using I, other companies to great way describe to other ones, but they are high-end scrubs that um, – that go direct to consumer. So they sell direct to consumer and, you know, they also partner with hospitals and colleges and stuff like that. And so, you know, what you get is you get a premium scrub, um, that you can wear. And the, you know, so I wrote about why, uh, scrubs is perfect for this, um, you know, for this social status symbol. And so, um, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, let's see. I'm really digging that this is what we're getting into for our podcast today. Because yeah, this well, is a, a fascinating a topic. From, um, a lot of this comes from someone I had on the podcast and her name is like escaping me. Um, but she's she's really great around brands and I, I hope to figure out the name at the end. Um, so, okay. So healthcare apparel... There in and and figs outline this in their in their S one, but there's really six reasons why um, healthcare apparel is kind of perfect for this cult like thing. So you know, one, you've got commoditized products, you've got brand obscurity, antiquated distribution. There's channel conflict, customer separation, and challenge margins. So to kind of roll through these, you know, all the, you know all at all at once, commoditized products. No one really cares in general what scrubs you have. So it's not like oh, did you get the Sintas scrubs, which, you know, not a shareholder in Sintas. Um, you know, did you get those scrubs or did you get, you know, brand XYZ? Like no one really cares. You just kind of get the scrubs and you buy the scrubs because you have to. And because it's a commoditized product at that point, you can't really compete on price because there's no brand there, um, which leads into brand obscurity. Again, I already said it. No one really cares about what brand of scrubs you wear, um, at least not until, you know, kind of figs came onto the scene. And so what that did, though, is if you don't have brand power and if you just have a commodity product, then you don't have any pricing power with uh, your distributors or even with your customers. And so with a lot of these scrub uh, manufacturers, they're just kind of intermediaries where you've got a third party manufacturer that's making these scrubs. And then this brand is just selling them through to the end consumers. And since there's no brand, um, you know, there's no brand affinity and every product is pretty much the same, there's no pricing power there. And so what's nice is figs kind of has a direct to consumer approach here. And so what they do is they say, look, you can buy through us or, you know, if we partner with colleges, you can colleges or hospitals, you can, you can buy through them. And this kind of makes sense because if you want to buy scrubs, hospital workers, they don't do like the traditional nine to five. So when they're trying to buy scrubs, they can't really buy them during normal shopping hours. And so the great thing about figs is, you know, whether you get off at midnight or 2 AM, you can just go to the website and just, you know, directly order through the website. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they solve that need there. And at the end of the day though, what matters in all of this is, does the company make a good product and do its customers love it and do its customers feel like they're part or 
do the customers feel like the company cares about them? And it's funny because like I'm saying all these things. And if you would have asked me like a year or two years ago, like if I would be thinking about companies in this way, I would have been like, no, like all of that stuff is meaningless. It's just because you have no idea like what the true value of the business is. But these are all these like intangible things that for better or for worse, I've really tried to adopt and really try to actually study because I think, again, going back to the end game, like what's going to matter? It's going to be the stuff that's not quantifiable. It's the stuff that algos can't pick up. And so a good way to stress test all this is just to see customer reviews and just watch YouTube yep. videos. And um, my sister is a nurse here at the local hospital and she's got friends and my brother has friends that are in you know the hospital um, you know healthcare business. And so all I did is I just asked around, I said, hey, have you guys heard of figs? Like, what do you think? And every single answer was yes, they're super popular. They're crazy expensive, but everybody loves them. I'm like, okay, that's kind of that's kind of what I thought. And then you read the story about their founders and how the founder started, you know, selling these things out of the back of a van. And um, what's what's nice, and just and just to kind of go back to this crossing the chasm book that I mentioned earlier, where you know you're trying to solve a small problem for one person. The founder, um, one of the one of the co-founders of Figs. She started the company because her friend, who was a healthcare professional, complained about the scrubs that she wore. She said, hey, you know, my scrubs, they're super boxy. They don't really feel good. I don't really feel good wearing them. And I think they were getting coffee. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to make the best scrub possible for you. And it goes back to this whole thing of like solving one person's problem. And her problem ended up being the same problem that millions of other healthcare professionals probably go through as well. And so they literally sold these scrubs out of the back of vans and hospitals. And from there, it's like the growth has been exponential. And so um, you have a product that works, you have a product that people love, and you have a product that's so good where people are willing to be ambassadors for the product. Um, and so it's just, it's just an incredible business. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's one of these where, you know, could it be the next Lululemon? Probably. Um, Healthcare apparel is a huge industry where no one is trying to do what Figs is doing, which is create a brand around certain apparel. And, you know, there are definitely bear cases here, which we can get into, but I'm going to pause and take a drink because my, <laughs> my mouth is so dry. <laughs> go for it, go for it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about when at the very beginning I said, you know, it was affordable. And then some of the feedback, and my wife got the same is that like, and she would even say it is expensive. But mm -hmm. you, when you think about quality, like this is something my wife tells me all the time, like you can't put a price on quality. You know, if it's something that's well-made and comfortable and good, you know, even if it's more expensive, even exponentially more expensive than what its competitor is, if that means it's going to last a little bit longer, then you're ultimately saving at in the long run, yeah. you know, well, and that's what I, that's what I noticed with figs, you know, like, yeah, I mean, well, so, and, 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 and the other thing too, and I know, you know, forgive me if I'm, if I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but jump, um, let's go. It's all good. We got but no, what's, no time let's again. Go. Yeah. Again, we go back to social status and the healthcare profession is kind of the perfect playground or sandbox, if you will, to show off social status. And what do I mean by that? Um, Everybody there works together, usually in the same shift. You know that person, you're working 12 to 24 hour shifts with them. And 
from the outside looking in, and again, you know, my sister kind of tells me some of these stories, but from the outside looking in, if COVID has done anything to this community, it's actually strengthened their bond with each other. Um, you know, because these people really are heroes. Uh, they, they, they were in there working day in and day out when a lot of us were just comfortably cooped up in our, in our homes. Um, you know, they were the first to get the vaccines and all that stuff. And, and, and so you have this tight knit community. And the other thing you have is interaction with a lot of highly, um, highly paid professionals, anesthesiologists, surgeons, all these people, they have teams of doctors, nurses, and staffs, you know, that go all along the healthcare profession totem pole. And when you interact with all these people on a daily basis, you enter into, again, the social status game. So you're around other people. And so when you wear figs and you go into work, people are like, oh, you know, hey, what are you wearing? They're like, oh, it's figs. It's, 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 it's this really nice um, scrubs product. And it's, it's, it's the best scrubs I've ever worn. I feel comfortable in them all day. Um, they, they actually look really nice. Like I can wear them out and I feel good about wearing them out. Um, and you know what that does again, it, it gives you more social status points because that person goes home and they're like, wow, okay, like, let me check them out. And then they see, you know, how much they cost. And they're like, oh, wow. Well, you know, if that person values their scrubs that much and kind of values what they wear, then maybe I should too, because I work with them and I do the same thing as they do. And, um, there is something to be said about paying for quality when you work 12 to 24 hours in the same clothes. Um, again, I've never worn scrubs, but I do see them, um, kind of the old school versus, you know, figs is the new school. And, I think the future of what most healthcare professionals are going to wear is going to look more like, uh, look more like figs, whether figs ends up being the winner or not. Um, I think, I think it's going to look more like figs because what, because what you're going to have is the company going to end up branching off into other areas of, um, apparel. So not just scrubs, but, um, I think they call it like health leisure or something or like scrub leisure where it's the same figs brand but it's now like workout clothes or it's like, you know, your business casual. And it, again, it's creating this brand around, Hey, I'm a healthcare professional because when you put on figs, what are you saying? I belong to this community of healthcare professionals and this company whose clothes I wear, they do nothing but love and support the community that I'm a part of. And like that creates a really sticky brand in what a lot of people see is just a commoditized product. Mm -hmm. And also like, if you think about it too, when it comes to fit and again, I'm not a shareholder, own it via my wife, is like, it would be really interesting to see if they start to do that, add on that extra line where, because as both, you know, uh, spouses of people in healthcare, family members like, your, like yourself for, of people in healthcare, you know, it's it, like, I see the figs, like it's not much of a stretch from, you know, the Lululemon pants, you know? And if their marketing is like, hey, these are high quality, comfortable pants or clothing that people who work on their feet 12 hours a day, you know, 12 to 24 hours a day, you know, what makes you think that this isn't comfortable for you to just wear while you're sitting here recording a podcast talking about finance uh, stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. like it, that's not a big stretch. No, it's not. But I think, I think one of the, one of the things that's kind of a little iffy about this is you want them to, again, we kind of go back to niche, like you want them to serve that community and just have it bleed course, out there because like, again, healthcare apparel is a $12 billion market. It's huge. 
And just to kind of put put some numbers in perspective, so in 2020, Figs did about 263 million in revenue. And again, this is a profitable company. So 263 million in revenue, 72% gross margin, and about 26% adjusted EBITDA margin. So you've got an incredible business that's leveraging that brand at 72% gross margin. That's that's incredible. Um, and I think I think I actually compare it to Lululemon. Yeah. So Lululemon does about 56% gross margin. Um, Stitch Fix does 44%, but Stitch Fix isn't, isn't a straight comparison. That's more for its direct to consumer brand. Um, so, you know, you've got this business that can grow a lot in its current market. It doesn't need to really expand beyond healthcare apparel. So what, what would make me worried again, if I was a shareholder, which I'm not is, is this company trying to diversify too quickly? Um, because they don't really need to, they've, they, they have, again, I think it's 2% of the total apparel market at this point. Um, yeah, so they've got 2% market share and I mean, they could double their market share in close, you know, get, get, get to a billion dollars or, you know, they could, they could get to a billion dollars in sales and be, you know, still less than. 10% of the entire the, market. The curse of being public. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know, yeah. but it's just, let's it's, hope not. Yeah. It's, 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 it's such an interesting opportunity. And then, and then again, you know, like from a valuation perspective, they IPO would at roughly 10 times current sales. So that's why I didn't buy. Um, but again, if you, if you, if you look out far enough, maybe 10 times sales is actually pretty cheap, but I don't want to make I don't want to make a bet based on a company being valued at 10 times sales, um, especially when I could probably be patient and get it for something less than that. Hey, Brandon, what? So, okay. I think, we, I think we covered figs, but from com, coming off, off this conversation about figs, you know, what, what commoditized industries or sectors do you think oh. have this potential? Come on, let's jam. Let's do this. This is such a, so this is, this is such an interesting concept and, um, it's something. It's something I, I didn't even have about. to finish. I didn't even have to finish the question. You knew what I, where I was going. Well, well, yeah. Well, yeah. It's fun because like that's that's such an interesting thought experiment. Um, yeah. Because again, like you look at um, another another recent IPO, which everyone has probably known, is Oatly. Uh, again, not a shareholder. Oh. Um, Sorry. And full disclosure, we bought it. We it was disgusting. Not yeah. it, it did it did not and we're down we're down with the experimental we'll try every other kind of milk yep. and this and that and the other thing it was my yeah idea. yeah so yeah so 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 you know again we're talking about brands but we're also talking about brands that have the ability to turn into cults because those two things aren't the same and so I am gonna read um, I am gonna read something from the figs report um, that I did and. Because I think it explains it better than I could. So uh, here, here it is from the from the from the snippet of the of the article, and you can kind of link it in the in the show notes if you want. So I said the recipe for cult like success is simple: you take a commoditized item, cars, workout clothes, stationary bikes, and coolers, and make it into a social status symbol. Now you just don't drive any vehicle; you drive a Tesla. You're not working out in sweats, but Lulu gear. That stationary bike, it's not a clothes hanger. It's a Peloton, a portal into the community of bike fitness freaks. And then if you remove the brand, you kill the cult. You, you, you kill the cult. But here's the kicker. Not every commodity product can or should be a cult. Cults form around sociable products, items you can bring to a friend's house, 
posts or posts on Instagram. Nobody's hashtagging their latest toilet paper purchase, and for good reason. We only share things that give us points in life's never-ending social status game. And so, like, that whole theme is a reason why I don't think a brand like Oatly actually has staying power or could become a cult. Again, I don't live in California. I don't live in Oregon where you see some of these more esoteric cult-like groups um, hang out around oat milk. But from, from a larger market perspective, oat milk isn't a sociable product. Like milk isn't something where you guys hang out, you get together and you're like, oh my gosh, like he's got oat, oatly in his fridge. Honey, he's got oatly in his fridge. Like, can you see that? Like, we got to go get some. Like, it's just, it's just not that way. Um, because again, it doesn't create this sort of social status the way a Yeti cooler does or the way Peloton does. Even relatively speaking, oatly might be as expensive as a Peloton bike in its, in its same market. But doesn't that just, but like all those companies that you just mentioned, by the way, are you a shareholder in any of those? No. No. Okay. No. Good. All right. But, but the one interesting thing that you mentioned about all those, and like, you can say what you will about the company's balance sheet, all that kind of stuff. Like that, that we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the quality of that product. Like everyone probably would agree that all those products are high quality. You know, yeah. like I've been in a Tesla. It's awesome. Not a shareholder. I own a Peloton. It's awesome. Not a shareholder. Not, I'm not a shareholder in any of these names either. Yeah. You know, it, it, Yeti. I own, we have Yetis. They're yeah. awesome. Not a shareholder. You know, so like it, it speaks more to the quality. And like we just said with Oatly, I mean, I, I'm not trying to personalize everything here, you know, because there are people that probably like Oatly and think it's tasty, you know, but it's, it's when a product has a universal, like this is awesome approval they have a better shot, you know? So I, I would push back and not in, on the old lead case in that sense in saying that like, maybe it's, maybe that, maybe that is just the product that it might, maybe it's not. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, like it, it might just not be that good. Yeah. And I guess, you know, from a, from a, from a relative perspective, it, 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 it kind of bodes a question of, is this product then like five to 10 times better than next, next comparable. And I think in a that's company a like too. figs, you yeah. can say like, okay, like this product is way better than other scrubs. Um, and you could say that, you know, whether it's Lululemon gear versus, you know, your traditional, like it's comparable at the time when it, when it, when it founded, it was way better than anything else. Um, the Peloton is way better than a lot of the comparables out there. Is Oatly way better than other milks? No, <laughs> like it's just not. <laughs> You can make your own at home, make your own oat milk at home, and it will. I I would I would say a hundred percent better than whatever. And also, like, especially if this is my own personal opinion again. Like when it comes to like those esoteric or alternative milks and alternative product, like even like Impossible Meat or Beyond mm -hmm. Meat and stuff like that. Like you got to read the labels too. Like that, mm -hmm. I, I would argue your your point on does it have potential cult like status vis a vis you know, showing that you, you, uh, it's showing some kind of social status for you is like, people might think that when it comes to buying some of those products, but then you read some of the labels and you see the crap that's in it. You know, that that's, that's when you end up having to ask that question yourself. Well, like, all right, do I really care about social status or do I want to eat? Do I want to put things in my body that are just not good for you? Potentially. Yeah. You know, yeah. so like, I think I, I would agree that it's probably harder on the, on the consumable side, but if you can create a consumables product that can break through that, that 
you know, has mass appeal, then damn, like I would argue that probably has even more staying power and more cold, like in social status than any, any of the other commodities. It's actually, yeah, it's actually, it's actually interesting. You brought that up. Um, there is, there, there was a company and I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a shareholder, but uh, fever tree (laughs) drinks, F E V R, uh, trades on the London stock exchange. And, you know, they're a company that, you know, they basically do a lot of, um, you know, like, spirits and and uh, tonic waters for mixed drinks and again it's kind of that perfect example of is fever trees tonic water five to ten x better than a lot of the competitors out there and the answer is yes and what's interesting about consumables and you brought up you know kind of taste is our brains actually wire us to prefer certain tastes and we get very comfortable with certain tastes and so there is this kind of breakthrough that can happen if you're a consumables uh, product that if you're that much better and people continue to eat or drink or you know kind of use use that product, uh, their brain is going to tell them that this is what they want because the brain's going to have those you know patterns that are going to say, okay, this is the flavor. We really like this flavor. So you know kind of keep feeding us this flavor. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't have the write up in front of me, but there's, you know, some science behind that saying that, you know, once your brain prefers a certain taste, it's kind of hard to kick that. Again, it goes back to, you know, like Coke versus Pepsi. People have these patterns in their brain that they prefer one or the other, and they can't tell you necessarily why, but on a neurological level, there's something going on there. And if you can pair that then with a brand that again is around a social status, um, symbol, then I think you've got, again, you've got the makings of something really powerful, but I will caveat all of this with saying like unit economics and the business actually matters. So what I really like about this is yeah. they're profitable. They've got 70% margins. They've got almost 30% EBITDA margins um, and they're making money and they've made money early on and they're highly profitable, highly successful. And that's why, um, you know, I always get worried when you see these con- you see these consumables companies like Oatly or Impossible Burger saying, no, hey, we're going to make it up in volume. It's like, well, that's kind of tough. Like if on a unit economic basis, you're not working and there's not really much different between you and the next closest competitor, um, you know, what good is your brand? And then what premium are you allowed to charge if no one sees your brand as, as being worth that much? Um, and then that's when you get into kind of this, you know, negative feedback loop. And so, you know, it matters. Prop profitability will eventually matter. And it that's, that's going to show if your brand actually has staying power and if your product is actually that much better than everybody else's. Well, isn't that the dream setup, right? You know, like yeah. they're already, they're 70% margins, you know, uh, profitable and they're still barely hitting the tip of the iceberg. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, or, or even if they're not profitable, if you can lay out a case why they can be over the next three to five years. Um, Because again, on like a unit economic level, they could be profitable, but on a, you know, full, fully 12 month basis, if you look at the financials, they could be unprofitable. Um, So, you know, there's, if, if, if it's not there, there's gotta be a compelling case and a logical case as to when and why they can get there. You know, it's funny you bring up that, that, that company who I'd never heard of before. What was it? Fever? Fever Fever tree? tree. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that one before. But speaking of consumables in the drink space, it seems like there's a lot. It also seems maybe a little easier to break in, not so much on the milk side, but on like on the spirit side, like June Shine. That company I've never is, heard of them. You're going to be in San Diego next week, so they they are they're everywhere in, in San Diego. Well, it's like, tough because like I don't drink personally, so like I have like mm-hmm. I like like I can't 
I can't speak to all these like alcoholic beverages stuff, but like I do know, like again, Celsius is another great one to so, talk about yeah. brands and the power of brands. Like Connor Haley from Altafox freaking nailed that thesis. Uh, what you know, what else is new? But um, <laughs> you know, again, if you if you go back to these mental models, and you know, I don't know if Connor was thinking about Monster Energy during that time, but you know, you look at how successful Monster was, and you can understand that beneath these products and beneath these brands in these industries is the potential for something to become a cult. Um, and you know, fitness, fit, fitness is a great one because people are drinking Celsius. It's like, Oh, Hey, you know, I drink Celsius again. I care about my body. Um, I want to feel good about what I put into my body. The, it tastes great. Um, I never truly understood why Celsius went up as much as it did because that space is, is again, it's so crowded. And so is Celsius really that much better than, say, Bang Energy or Rain Energy or the new Jocko Fuels, which are now my favorite? Um, not a sponsor. Wish I will be one day. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just fun though. Like it's it, it's fun to study these to study these brands and 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 to see why they take off from a from 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 someone that was purely focused on quantitative to move all the way over here it's been it's been the most fun for me because now I can do both and I can feel comfortable doing both it's funny you bring up the celsius example cuz i mean i remember them seeing at a microcap conference years ago and i was and my first instinct was like i don't i mean like even if this is somewhat good like it is this is like the most packed competitive space out there you know so it's it, i mean it's been incredible to see their i'm Full disclosure: I'm not a shareholder. Um, we've been saying that a lot today. I think we wanted to say that today. I think I think that was our goal is, is to get the record for how many times. It's like a, yeah. my goal is just to not own the companies that end up doing the best because that's yeah, of course, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what space I've been thinking about a lot that or as we're as we're talking through this and thinking about it is CBD because I feel like that has. Like it's very similar to the energy drink space in that like, mm -hmm. it's just so crowded. It's how much marketing dollars can you throw at this thing? You know, um, how many sponsored athletes can you get? You know, uh, it, it's pretty interesting to see what's been going on in the CBD space and like how that's, how it, it, you're starting to see a lot of the same things that was going on in energy drinks, you know, what, 10 years ago, 10, 15 mm -hmm. years ago. You know, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see like who who ends up winning from that. And yeah, I know it's 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 super interesting. I mean, profitable. I don't have a horse in this. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't have a horse in this race. Um, and from a from a non user perspective, um, I I I would bet that there is some sort of preference, taste preference, or right. um, some sort of preference again, Not kind of similar either, to so yeah. So like you know, kind of kind of similar to drinks where you know, let's say you buy um you know marijuana from this one company. And, you know, you really like that, how it, how it tastes, you know, I guess how it's, I mean, look, I'm such a novice, like how it smells, how it feels, blah, 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 like whatever, you know, people that enjoy that product care about, like, if it's really that good, um, then, then, then I think that you've got the recipe there. Um, what I wonder though, is I think the, the product taste or the preference recommendation isn't in necessarily the brand itself, but in the actual like variant of the marijuana, like leaf 
itself, if that makes sense. So like, it's not the company that's really changing like the taste. It's just like, oh, you got this different version, like this different type of marijuana from, from, from somewhere else. And it's not the brand that did it, but it's just kind of a different strand. Again, this is way outside my circle of competence, but like, that's kind of where my brain goes. My, my brain goes similarly in that, like, you just want to make like, here, the two things that are most important, at least from my thinking, when it comes to like CBD and or in the cannabis space on the consumer side is enough variance. You know, you have all the different options potential right. out there, you know, high THC content, low THC content, you know, high, the, the other one. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and on top of which convenience, you know, like uh, being able to acquire it in a very easy, efficient way. Um, I mean, those, those seem to be the two most, but, but then again, I'm like you, I'm not, not, not anymore. Uh, yeah. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to take me a long time to try to get a circle of competence around which brand's going to work at this point. I, I, I have no idea. A hundred percent. I'm doing, I'm doing an injustice, man. I look at the end of your pod, you said the one person you want to meet in history, I said, Bob Marley, you know, I, 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 I should know more, uh, but, but <laughs> give me the Latin names for these plants, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. Serious. Um, all right, dude. Well, look, we could jam for hours. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, tr- try and close this up here, but you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you my favorite question that I ask everybody on here. And uh, I got to have you back on because I, I had this whole thing where I wanted to ask you about, you know, lessons learned from your podcast guests and all that stuff, but we're going on yeah, an hour man. and a half. So yeah. we'll, we'll come, you'll come back and we'll, we'll do that. But, yeah, um, cool, but as, as you know, my favorite question I was asking, you know, what, what investing experience would you say impacted you the most in your career? Uh, so recently I'll give you, I'll give you two. I'll give you one good one and one bad one. Um, and, and, and I'll try to make these quick. The bad one was target hospitality ticker is T H. Um, and I'm not a shareholder, but I bought this company. Um, I actually pitched it in front of an entire group of like my favorite investors at this really nice investors conference. And, um, it went from $9 when I pitched it down to, let's see, it went from nine to 85 cents. So a good 90% precipice. And uh, the reason why I learned a lot from this business is I learned that I am not at all remotely capable of investing and understanding these cyclical type commodity linked businesses. I think I can trade them pretty well based on technicals, but when it comes to the fundamentals, I have absolutely no idea. And this, this, um, this company made me, made me realize that painfully. Um, I, I was, I was lucky enough to sell. I think I sold around like seven or eight. Um, so I didn't write it all the way down, but the lesson is still very painful because this was the stock that I pitched in front of all of my favorite investors, um, at this big conference. And, you know, all of them are now looking back over the year, like, Oh, look, what, what stock did Brandon pitch? Oh, he pitched one that went from $9 to 90 cents. Like, that's fantastic. Let me know your next one so I can short it. But, um, it just, it, it, it reemphasized the point of circle of competence and not necessarily knowing what you're really, really good at, but really knowing the edges of that boundary. Um, because I think, you know, I always got to quote Charlie Munger at least once is, I think if you focus on not doing too many stupid things, 
you don't have to worry about really nailing the big ones. Um, because if you, if you, if you reduce that left tail and you know, your worst losses get, get, get less and less bad, um, that's going to go so far for you. Um, and, and, and that was an example that just reemphasized like, Hey dude, stay away from commodity linked products. Like that's not your area. Like that's, that's, that's your batter's zone where you're swinging like 0.005. So so that was well, so stay away from commodity linked products that don't have potential for cult like status. Yeah. Yeah. If, that's, if, I mean, right. That's, that, that's pretty much it. And then the <laughs> good one, um, and I was on Maj's podcast actually talking about this, I think it was last year, um, is Ammo Inc. POW. So full disclosure, I am still a shareholder. It's actually my largest position. I think it's over 20% of my book at this point. Um, I was buying that stock at around a dollar seventy-five was when I first started buying, and um, it's done. It's done well since. It's uh, it's trading close to nine dollars now, um, and that was again a product that I thought I understood, and I thought that their product was five to ten times better than anything on the market, and they had a cult-like following around their retail product. Um, it was more expensive and they could charge higher margin on the retail side, but people kept buying. And if you looked at the reviews, people said, yes, it's expensive, but it's the most fun ammo I've ever shot in my life. And um, the CEO is a great operator. He's had past success. Um, he built a uh, NASCAR you know, toy figurine business, uh, 10X its sales, and I think less than 10 years, sold that business, then went and won the lottery in Arizona and then started this company. Um, and it was one where I bet initially, and I made it a decent sized position, but more importantly is I kept adding as the story improved and as management executed, which Ian Castle talks about this a lot is like, knowing when to add to your winners and always trying to add to your winners and, 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 and cutting your losers. And I, I, I always do a good job or, I, you know, I try to always do a good job of cutting my losers. Like, I think, I think I do that pretty well. What I don't do well is adding to my winners when they're working because I see higher cost basis. And I see kind of, if I, if I increase my cost basis too much, then my, my returns aren't going to look as good. And, 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 you know, if the stock really reverses, then I could be in the negative as opposed to, you know, entering at a dollar 75 instead of now my cost basis is, you know, $3 or so. But I tried to get over that with, with, with this stock. And I said, look, if this company keeps executing, like they are not, they are proving to me that they are, they are worthy of more of my capital and management has proved to me that they are worthy to have more of my investment because I think that they're, they're going to continue to do good things. And with that said, the better they do and the faster they grow. And th you know, this, this, this company's grown crazy, like 300% year over year growth in revenue. They're probably going to be, um, EBITDA profitable by next quarter for the first time ever. Um, and they're doing all the right things. And so, you know, a, a lot of it was just, you know, kind of hold my nose and buy more because they're executing and it wasn't comfortable. Like, I wish I could say like, Oh, it was so easy. Like they're, they're working, things are going well. I just kept buying. It was like, no, like I didn't really want to, but I'm trying to get better at that. Um, and you know, luckily the thesis is playing out well. I really think that the company, uh, is, is, is still under undervalued compared to what I think it's worth. I think it's going to be a much bigger business in the next 12 to 18 months. 
Um, and again, you know, kind of checked off where I think I have a base level understanding of, 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 um, you know, cult products and, and, and understanding those, those types of dynamics. All right. So to close this out, what advice do you have for new investors out there? Uh, just in general, you know, how should they think about entering the market? How should they think about stocks? You know, what, what, what's your advice? That's a good question. Uh, Let's see. I would say to not focus so much on the quantitative business aspects, like the quantitative financials, but to really try to understand why customers love companies that solve specific problems. Um, because if you can understand that, then the accounting numbers are very simple. You can you can teach yourself the accounting rather rather quickly. But what takes a lot of time is developing an understanding on the tremendous impact, both financial and, um, you know, business wise that a company can have if they really solve a big problem for a customer. And, um, if you, if you, if you can understand that, and then if you can kind of understand the dynamics of, 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 of how those customers, um, you know, how those customers interact with the company at the early stage and then kind of all the way through the life cycle. Uh, that's why I think that book crossing the chasm is so important because it kind of walks you through these early stage companies. Um, and then from there, I would say, um, you know, study the best investors. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, but study the Buffets, the Greenblatts. Um, I would, I would put Ho Nam of Altos capital, um, in that, in that category, um, from, from a venture perspective. Uh, one thing I wish I did earlier was actually study the earlier stage businesses. So whether that's, you know, the micro caps or the, um, you know, private, private businesses and what, what makes them tick and really focus on case studies. So taking companies that have delivered, you know, 10 baggers or so in the last 10 to, you know, 10 to 20 years, what made them, uh, be, as successful as they were, and then just really understand those case studies. And then those become mental models for the companies that you study going forward. So, you know, if someone understood Lululemon and then they stumbled upon figs, they already have that mental toolkit of, Hey, I know what a cult like apparel company looks like, and I know how this works if it works well. And so you can then develop a model and say, okay, then I kind of know how to track these, um, all the accounting stuff. Like you can, you can, you can teach yourself. It's, 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 it's not too hard. Um, but what is hard is really understanding the customer, uh, company relationship and how powerful that is. Very good. That is a perfect way to end it, but I have to, I'm going to steal one of your questions that you ended it. I'm going to ask it back to you because I don't know if anybody asked this to you. So I'm throwing it to you, man. Who do you want to meet in Theodore uh, Roosevelt? Theodore Roosevelt, why? Yes. I want to hear that. He's just, I mean, I read, uh, there's a really great biography about him. It's like, at the time, I was reading through it in college, and I thought it would never end because it was like 980 pages uh, <laughs> of really, really, really small text. But, I mean, the guy's life is incredible. Like, what he's had to battle as a kid, um, suffering severe asthma, always underweight, Um which, you know, to get, to get personal, I was always kind of a smaller kid growing up. Um, I was never the fastest, never the strongest. And the Theodore Roosevelt story really resonated with me because uh, he, he, he took what he had. And I mean, he would be bedridden for weeks because his family would go away on, on, these, on these European trips and he'd be bedridden for weeks because his asthma was so bad. Um, and he just, he just could barely breathe. 
And he took that and he basically said, okay, like I need to make myself like I, I need to transform myself and it's up to me. And he took accountability and he trained his ass off. He swam, he boxed, he did jujitsu. He, um, you know, hiked, he hunted, he did all of these things because he, he understood the depths of how bad it could get. And he never wanted to go there again. So he said, I'm going to do everything I can to just not be that person just to overcome it. And, you know, so those, so those stories are awesome. And then just seeing his dogged determination, um, you know, you know, at the, at the, at the bully pulpit and just making, making a scene in Congress and, and him, you know, from, from living in New York and, and striking it through in politics and then making it to the presidency and just, you know, all throughout having a real Renaissance mentality, um, love nature, loved, loved, um, geopolitics, loved the strategy of war. And he just had all of these things going, um, you know, in his brain. I think, I, I, I think he wrote like one of the, um, you know, like one of the epics of, um, I want to say it was like the seven years war or some war. He like wrote a whole history about it when he was 22 or 21. Um, and he's just an incredible human and every, everybody has their faults, but, um, I mean, gosh, like just to have a dinner with him and and just ask him about some of these stories is I, I like, you can, you could do an entire podcast about Theodore Roosevelt, honestly. All right, fine. I'll host it. Let's go. You can do, you could do it. You could do a book review on that. Uh, yeah that'd be amazing that'd be awesome (laughs) all right brandon with that where can my audience go and find more information about you follow you on social listen to the pod uh, give give all the plugs yeah so the podcast is uh you know just type in value hive podcast and whatever podcast platform you listen to um head on over to macro-ops.com if you want to learn about some of the research we do uh we have you know the free site where we post a bunch of ideas and research and we also have a premium service called the collective where you get kind of our full our full portfolio weekly trade updates um and a community of incredible traders and investors um that's unlike anything that i've seen on the internet so there's so there's that and then on twitter again you can follow me at market plunger one and please also follow me at brandon underscore balo <laughs> all right dude well thanks again this is awesome and uh i look forward to our next chat yeah man likewise all right take care this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.